Well, you find Genesis 39, first book of the Bible, the book of beginnings, of course. I want to tell you about Nags Head, North Carolina. Nags Head, North Carolina. It's a place just off the island of Cape Hatteras. And it's been around for several hundred years. In fact, in the 1800s, <clears throat> Nags Head um, was inhabited by a group of people called the Wreckers. So who are the Wreckers? W-R-E-C-K-E-R-S. The Wreckers. Well, the Wreckers were a group of men primarily, and then they had families. I don't think the families were involved in the wrecking business that they developed. But the Wreckers lived off Nags Head. And here's what they did. They would take an old horse every night and hang a lantern around the horse's neck. You know, you call an old horse a nag. Thus the name Nags Head. And on the head of this small village was Diamond Shoals Beach. They'd take this old nag, hang a lantern around the neck of this horse, and lead that horse in the dark up and down the rocky shores of Diamond Shoals Beach. They're off of uh, Nags Head. Here's why they did that. Because they lived off the cargo and the supplies of wrecked, damaged ships. But these ships didn't run aground accidentally. These ships were seduced and enticed by the wreckers, by this old nag who had this lantern hanging around her neck. You see, a, a captain of a ship might be out in the mid-Atlantic, not sure of which way to go, perhaps a foggy evening or early morning, looking for maybe some kind of passageway, some kind of signal that am I going the right direction? He'd spot perhaps to his left. Oh, well, there's a, there's a stern light of a ship without really knowing that it was the deceitful uh, fake light of a lantern around the neck of an old horse. So the captain, not sure where to go, and feeling the pressure of the storm perhaps, or the density of the fog, would say, oh, let's turn. He's probably found his way. And they would turn to the left or right, and within a matter of minutes, they would run aground on the rocks and crash or, or hit hard, and the wreckers were always on shore. And with nowhere to go and nothing to do, uh, the wreckers then would pillage and plunder the ships. And for several years, the wreckers built a thriving community off of goods and supplies, cargo, that wasn't even rightfully theirs. In fact, their business was built on treachery. And yet this entire community was, was living off of a... An old lantern hung around an old horse's neck. That's an axe head. Many a captain has no doubt wished he had never turned ship toward an axe head. And I want to say to you, church, there's a nags head off the shore of your life as well. When the storms seem really thick and the pressure seems intense, when the fog seems really dense... And we're looking for, for someone or something that says, you know what, the, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. There's got to be a way out. If we're not careful, we won't really see the true light. We'll notice a false light as well. And we'll turn to the left or right. We'll get off course only to realize moments later we've hit the rocks. And you know what? The greatest wrecker of all, the deceiver, Satan, is waiting to pillage and plunder your life beyond all reasonable sanity. That story is pictured in the life of Joseph in Genesis 39. 
Where Joseph, no doubt, had a nag's head off the shore of his life too, didn't he? We don't know her name, but she's referred to as Potiphar's wife. We'll just call her Mrs. Potiphar. How does that sound? And in the midst of enduring great um, tests, while being very faithful under difficult situations in a foreign country with a pretty intense job and risen very quickly in his promotion, lots of things happening that was out of his control, but he was remaining faithful, wasn't he, in the time of testing. He was like the watermelon. He was the watermelon seed. He was enduring, remember? In the middle of those moments, a light starts shining off the nag's head of Joseph's wife. Let's read about it. Genesis 39, verse 6. Follow along with me. The Bible says this, that Joseph was well built and handsome. And boy, that sets up the stage right there, doesn't it? And after a while, his master's wife took notice of him. And there seems to be a timeline here, doesn't there? Like, Joseph was just a, uh, you know, like this hot guy doing his duty. And his wife, the, the wife of Potiphar, just kept watching and waiting and watching and waiting. And finally, I guess Joseph's hotness, you know, got the best of her. And she says to him in verse 7, come to bed with me. And you just got to love the discreetness of Mrs. Potiphar, don't you? I mean, she doesn't really take her time. No pickup lines. It's like, let's have sex. What do you say? I love verse 8, though. But he... Refused. Amen. When immorality tries to seduce you in whatever form, you can say no. Hallelujah. Joseph did. It is possible and expected and biblical to refuse immorality. And then he says to her, With me in charge, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. I wonder how she took that line. That's a pretty interesting line, isn't it? But then he says, My master's withheld nothing from me except you. And he begins to put a delineation, a, a, a line of demarcation between everything in his care and then the wife. And he says, You know what? I, I'm not over you. I don't have charge of you. I don't have rights to you. And then he makes this argument. Um, he says, because you're his wife. He then elevates this. He says, how then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against whom? Yeah, I mean, think about it, guys. Potiphar's not even in the picture, at least in the text. Now, I know implied, he's saying, listen, Mrs. Potiphar, the, your husband is trusting me with everything. But you know what? You're not part of that picture. I don't have the rights to make decisions about you. You don't belong to me. But then he elevates and says, listen, the truth is, if I commit this sin, if I am enticed and seduced and give in, yeah, I've sinned against you. I'm sure I've sinned against you know, Potiphar. But guess what? I'm sinning against God. And he raises the, and elevates this whole temptation situation, which is a very good practical tactic to use. Here's how I word it. You might want to jot this down. You must, in order to resist temptation, one of the things you can do is, is really see it through a spiritual perspective. Okay? Joseph did that well. He saw this temptation not just from a hormonal, sexual, or physical level. He saw it from God's perspective. And he saw how his, his giving in would not only sin against the people involved, but it would be a wickedness against God. Can I, can I ask you a question? With humility in my voice... 
but great compassion in my heart and boldness in my spine. The last time you sinned this week, did you realize that you sinned against Almighty God? And I can turn the tables that when I sinned this week, it was God that I sinned against. See, I think this perspective is missing in much of the battle against temptation. It's what Adam and Eden missed. you know that? I mean, they were just looking at, at, I'm sure in her perspective, it's just a piece of fruit. And I'm only going to take one bite. And after all, you know, the serpent seemed to say that maybe God didn't really say what He said. And so I'm kind of confused now what God really said. And, and it's probably not that big a deal. It's just one bite. And then, and guess what? At that moment, at that bite of whatever that fruit was off of that tree, whatever that was that she took with this, all of human race was plunged into sin. If you have children, they were born in sin because of that one sin. You were born in sin because of that one act. Don't ever underestimate the eventual result of one single wickedness against God. See, that's what I call divine reasoning. And it really helps me. Um, when I, and every week I face temptation just like you. You know, I'm a normal man like you are. We all battle the pull of sin. Satan wants to take us out. So I'm in this struggle with you. And one of the things that really has helped me for several years now is that the moment of temptation, when I sense things happening, when I can feel certain things kicking in, that I want to say certain things that would not be biblical and they'd be wrong against God, or when I want to do certain things that would, would bring danger to situations or hurt to my family, I say, you know, if this one sin is blown up and has its full effect, what could happen? And I start thinking, well, I might lose respect to my kids. Maybe one day when my kids have kids, they might not be so sure they won't let their kids hang around their grandpa. Maybe I'll be in the paper and bring great shame to First Family Church. Or, and I start letting this sin take its full effect. You say, Todd, that sounds so extreme. Exactly. Because when sin is finished, James says it brings forth death. And most of our problems are we don't have the right spiritual perspective on sin. We think it's kind of a game, just a little bit of struggle. We think authenticity is just saying, yeah, I can have a little bit of sin. And we have these false views of what it means to, to, to really, to, when we sin against God. It is a wickedness against God. I urge you, see it from His angle and let us run away from it. Watch for it. Be on guard. Why? Because there's an adversary known as the devil and he's prowling around looking for people that he can what? Nibble? Just bite? Say it with me. Devour. The sooner you start seeing sin at the level Joseph did as wickedness against God, even every little one, the sooner you do that, the closer that you'll be to the Lord in your walk and the more victory you'll have. It's a struggle. But that's what's really going on here. And Joseph had this ability to see things from, from, the, from the perspective of God. I like what else he did, though. He combined that with one other tactic. Look what he did. Verse 10. Even though he reasons with her spiritually and says, You know what? I'm not going to give in 
to sexual immorality with you, it would be a wickedness against God. Even though he reasons with her, verse 10 says that though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused. This is the second time we've seen that word. He refused to go to bed with her. And then the Bible says, or even be with her. I love that phrase. You know why? Because it lets me know that in the middle of Joseph reasoning with himself and spiritually seeing things correctly, he actually took physical measures to avoid sin. He changed his work schedule so he could not be around her. He's a smart dude, isn't he? Because he knew the power of a woman. He knew the, the seducing power of an adulteress. And he knew he was what? Handsome and well-built. He probably had normal testosterone. He had normal curiosity. We don't think Joseph was married until later in Egypt. So there's, this was a situation just ripe with, uh, you just, it's just going to blow up and be a problem. Day after day she comes to him. So he says, you know what? She's not listening to me, so I'm just going to have to change my schedule. I've got to take physical actions to avoid sin. I think that's interesting. Look at the next verse. It says that one day when he went to his house to attend to his duties, kind of like the idea was that he, is, he was making arrangements to do his work without her being around. Well, apparently, verse 12 says she kind of caught him by his cloak. I get the picture here textually that she surprised him. He was sticking to his physical schedule of saying, I'm not going to be around her. She's relentless, and I'm, I'm, just, I'm going to do all I can to avoid this situation. But she kind of was tracking him and sabotaging him. She catches him and she says again, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand. I love that phrase. There was no possession more important than his purity. Hallelujah. And then he ran out of the house. Let's re- let, me re- let me repeat that. He ran out of the house. I mean, he ran. Now, I like to run. Um, I mean, to rephrase that. I like to jog. <laughs> okay? I go to the wide lift, and then I'll jog a few miles and watch ESPN. I mean, I like that. But, you know, I do a lot of running. Like, just all out running. But the word here indicates speed. It doesn't indicate like casual sauntering. It doesn't indicate jogging. Joseph hit the road, Jack. He got out of there. Why? Because he realized, okay, my spiritual perspective of sin is that it's a wickedness against God, but Mrs. Potiphar is not on the same plane, so it looks like I've got to take a physical position to deal with this. And so he adjusted his schedule, and when she kept tempting him, he got out of Dodge. You know what I love about Joseph? He spiritually and physically did everything possible to resist temptation. Now that's the kind of commitment that could take a church from us being a church in America to being a body of believers that God would put His hand on and just favor them and, and watch that thing. It'd have great impact. Why? Because, man, we're seeking the glory of God and, the, and His favor, not just trying to be normal. And Joseph was totally into getting rid of sin. He pursued righteousness. When I was about 12 or 13... I was riding my bike um, to the gym one day at a road to school. And so I got on Mayfair Avenue and headed up to Belvoir. I was going to take a ride on Belvoir, go down to Brandon Road, and then go up to the gym. I was about 12 or 13. And as I got on Mayfair Avenue to head toward the gym, there's a wooded section in our neighborhood. And it's not there now, but when I was growing up, there's a section of woods. And this is an honest story. It's going to sound crazy to you. Um, but I'm riding my bike, a little blue bike that I had built. So I'm just pedaling away, and I was never really big. I was a little kind of kid just pedaling. And out from these woods, a guy kind of comes out about 17 or 18. I think he was the brother 
or a brother's friend of a guy that I had on the street named Ricky McCord. Ricky was kind of a wild dude and had all kinds of stuff at his house going on. So I'm not sure if that's really who it was because I never found out. But he comes out of the woods and he says, Hey, you want to see a naked girl? I thought I'd get your attention with that. Everybody's like, The pastor said the word naked in church, you know. Just relax, okay? And I'm riding this bike, and I'm just, you know, kind of into puberty a little bit. I've got T-levels probably going crazy. My curiosity's kind of peaking. I'm like, naked girl? I'm 12. That's a set of woods. This is not a good situation, but all this is running through my head so fast. And God just kind of put the Incredibles little boy's feet on me for that little moment. I mean, I'm pedaling. All of a sudden, I'm just starting to pedaling fast. I'm pedaling fast. And I'm just getting out of there, you know. I was reasoning in my head like, you know, if I, if I were to stop and look over there, because when he said that, a girl kind of came out with him, kind of smiling, you know, and grinning. She had very few clothes on. Now, at 12, I'm thinking, man, that would be crazy. That, 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 what's going on here? But looking back, there was probably more in regards to abduction and danger than there was sex, to be honest with you. I don't know that. But I just started peddling. And then he kind of reached out and said, wait, come here. And I went around him and I'm like, man, I am not even looking. I'm not even stopping. I started peddling and he said, hey, come on, be fun. She whistles and I just head for the gym. Now, what if I would have said, you know, I just want to talk to you about this for a minute. What if I would have tried to discuss the morality of this kind of sexual behavior in the woods with a minor? I mean, there's just not a lot of wisdom in a 12, 13-year-old kid stopping to discuss this kind of temptation. So you know what? Somewhere, I don't even know how or why, but God just gave me the legs to pedal as fast as I could. And I think my... I read this story and think about that story in my life. It really encourages me today not to even try to play with sin. And what if I would have stopped? Who knows what could have happened? Let's say that wasn't even a, a situation that was dangerous. Let's say that it really was just an, um, some weirdos and wanting to play with sex, so to speak. Let's say I stopped. Let's say it opens up a whole arena of my life into sexual deviance. Let's say I leave there and I start heading down a road that's into pornography and then into to all kind of weird stuff. And let's say at 18 I'm, I'm very I'm very deaf to the voice of God. And then let's say I and so the rest of my life all these things start happening because of this initial encounter in which I didn't say no to. Are you with me, guys? That's how sin works. It comes as a small seed of lust. And if we give in, it will grow into a monster that will choke us. And that's why we must, in spiritual perception and in physical position, do all we can to stay away from the nag's head off the shore of our life. Because the wreckers are there. And they're waiting to pillage and plunder and take you out. These um, two things, spiritual perception or spiritual perspective and, and physical position, you know what they remind me of? Watch this. This interesting correlation. They remind me of what Jesus Christ told the disciples in the garden in Luke. Do you remember that? I believe it's in Luke 22. We studied this a few months ago. Remember, He said to the disciples, Watch and pray so that you do not enter to temptation. You know what watching is? It's the word guarding. It's seeing and being in a position where, where you're not going to be vulnerable. And praying is being in touch with God. It's seeing things from His perspective. I think 
Joseph, in a real Old Testament way, was doing both of these. Physically and spiritually. He was watching and in touch with God, praying. That's, and Jesus said in the New Testament, that's how we avoid falling to temptation. Guess what, guys? I want to urge you today, when you leave here and sin tries to seduce you, when the nag's head off the shore of your life and the light starts beaming brightly and you feel pulled, hey, see it from God's perspective and do whatever you have to do physically to avoid it. Find a new line in the grocery store if the magazines are too much to handle. If your computer is, not in, the, is in a private place, move it to the hall of your home. You know, Put it on the kitchen counter. If you tend to spend money wrongfully, have your partner or your, your wife or your husband sign with you. I mean, do whatever you have to physically to make sure that you do you have all the help possible to avoid sin. Just 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 really strive for righteousness. Joseph did. And it kept him on course, by the way. It kept him focused on what God wanted him to do. Now, on a side note, I just want to ask that when it comes to this area of sexual immorality, sexual temptation, um, I'm going to speak to the guys here. Guys, you know, we have got to be responsible men. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 16, men of courage, men of backbone, we have to really discipline our eyes. Amen? We have to, uh, when temptation comes our way, we have to be willing to make physical adjustments. We can't play with uh, sexual immorality. The proverb says that you cannot take fire into your bosom without being burned. So this is not a game or a toy. So you have to be responsible and disciplined. Paul called this being sober-minded in the New Testament. And I'm amazed at how many of the talk show hosts in our, in our TV culture and how many of people in our culture, even in churches, make light of sexual issues. And you know what that does? That eventually breeds a light-hearted attitude about it. When Paul said we should be sober-minded, there's no way around that word in the New Testament. It means to have a, a serious mindset about sin. And he says that specifically to young men. Read 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. Hey guys, we must really buckle down and be serious about our purity. Our eyes, our thoughts. The ladies in our church, the lady in your life is counting on you. By the same token, ladies, you could help here. You say, Todd, how could we help? Well, you're right. It's not your responsibility. I mean, a man lusts when and he gives in to sin. You're right. It's his responsibility. But I like what uh, one writer said when she was talking about um, some things that would help a guy. Let me read this to you. It's an article by Vicki Courtney. It's called An Open Letter to Hoochie Mamas. <laughs> Written by a lady, two ladies. <laughs> And she kind of discusses her kid's life and her husband, just different things, and how there's just a lot of TMY going on in her culture. You've heard of TMI, right? We use that to say, hey, listen, too much information. Well, she's now come up with this new thing called TMY, which is too much you. Here's how she says that ladies can help men with this whole task of really standing strong and being responsible morally. She says, simply don't subject us to too much... um, How can I word this gently? You. She goes on to write, Just as we do not wish to hear a co-worker's Monday morning recap of sexual escapades in the name of TMI, too much information, 
But he says, we do not wish to witness your public displays of TMY too much you. She writes, your epidermis is showing and it's time to cover up. Then she says, there, I said it, I feel much better. You know, it's an interesting article that she writes, and you can read the whole article. Her entire rant actually is online at our website. You'll go there, uh, just click on the extra point. And there's another article there as well about just the whole idea of how sexual sin seems to come into a man's life and drag him down incrementally. Both those are there for your reading. And I mention those because I, I think it's something we all need to address. We need to realize that it's a struggle for men and women, and we all play a part in helping develop a church that really seeks purity, a family that seeks purity. Amen? Hey, husbands and wives, work together on the modesty of your girls. If you're giving your husband beef every time he tries to raise the standard in some ways, it's going to be a struggle from day one. You know? Who cares if you're in with the culture? Let me say that again. Who flat out cares? Our church doesn't care. We're going to pursue God and bring glory to Him. Regardless of the style, we're going to go after God and the same in your family. With your own personal life. Are you listening to me, guys? Listen, work together. Talk about what your standards are and where the lines are. As a family, as an individual, as a group of friends, pursue purity at all costs. Work together. And men, when you are faced with TMY, be like Joseph. See it from God's angle and then physically take action and flee. Get out of Dodge. Because you see, when we do that, then then we, watch this, we show God that He can trust us. You hear me? When we're faithful under fire, God sees that and He says, I can trust you. And as he watched Joseph resist temptation, I think it really led God then to say, Wow, Joseph, you don't give in when there's tests. You don't give in when there's temptation. You are so faithful. And God began just to, little by little lead him to greater avenues of impact. In fact, the rest of 39 and 40 talk about Joseph's time in prison. You may say to yourself, Todd, how is that a great end to temptation? He lands in prison. Ah, but I remind you about one of the phrases in chapter, what is it, 39, verse uh, verse 20, 21. Look there with me. But while Joseph was there in the prison, what does 21 say? The Lord was with him. And can I say to you, church, that a prison with God is a thousand times better than a party without Him. Moses knew this, didn't he? The writer of Hebrews tells us that Moses chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasure of sin for a few moments. You see, Joseph made the choice of maturity, didn't he? He avoided externals. He avoided temporary, momentary satisfaction. And he chose instead long-term gain. And that's exactly the choice Satan wants you to be faced with. Hey, give in to short-term pain. Give in to it. You can't endure. You can't make it. You ought to give up. And so we see the sure light. We think it's a way out. And we make a turn. And we give in to short-term remedies and short-term situations. And we find ourselves wrecked and crashed. But those who choose long-term wisdom, which initially is harder. And there's pain in that. And usually you get ridiculed. But those who choose the way of wisdom over the long haul find themselves like Joseph. The Lord is with them, 
And usually they find themselves like Joseph. They're favored by those around. And in the long run, they're actually back in the same place they were at the beginning. You say, what do you mean, Todd? Well, if you read 39 and 40, you find that Joseph was actually in charge of the prison. Isn't that odd, guys? That at the very end of this whole tempting situation, he's in prison, falsely accused. He actually is not in prison. He's in charge. Just like he was in Potiphar's house. God has this way, if we stand strong, of working things to the advantage and, and, the, and the right way. So even in bad situations, if God is with us, we find Him using us and employing our gifts and helping us be exactly what He's made us to be. Joseph, even in prison, was right where God wanted him to be, doing what God wanted him to do. Why? Because he stayed strong and resisted. Now, I want to share something with you. This process is what you are going through and I am going through right now. Where, where God trusts us with a vision. He reveals to us a preferred future. He lays out for you how He wants your life to be. And, and He does do that. He wants us to conform to the image of His Son. He wants to raise us up into holiness and righteousness. That's what God wants for us. Romans 8.29 But that road is not easy. And most churches aren't preaching this. It's like, get saved, tomorrow the rose garden comes, the next day the million bucks, you're in good shape. That's not the plan of God. God's plan usually involves bearing your cross and enduring test. And after test, usually major temptation. But after you're tried, Job said, then you come forth as gold. You say, Todd, how do you know that? Just from Joseph's life? Well, I take Joseph's life of the truth and the test and the temptation, and I match it with James, which reveals the very same process. Look at this. James chapter 1, about verse 12. I'll show you the verses up here. I want you to watch the screen this time. Make notes on your worship folder teaching tool. That's fine. But look at this verse here. James chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. And notice the same progression as revealed in Genesis... And God begins to set a pattern for us. He shows us how we grow. He shows us how we increase in our trust with Him and to Him. Look what it says. He says, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. Because when he has stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life that God has promised. You know what? That verse speaks about the watermelon seed I gave you last week, doesn't it? Look what it says here. After the test, usually the tempting comes. But when you're tempted, you shouldn't say, hey, God's tempting me. And that's the natural human inclination. When things are tough for a long period of time, we start saying, man, God, thanks a lot. I don't know what you're doing up there. I'm not sure what you're doing with me, but this is crazy. And we start blaming God. You hear it all over the culture, don't you? But God says He doesn't tempt people and He can't be tempted. It's actually an evil one. So when you hear a voice that says, man, all your bad stuff's from God, you need to say right away, that's the evil one. That's not, that's not God. Don't wonder and pray about it. I can assuredly say to you biblically, it is not God. He doesn't tempt His children. The Satan uh, Satan's going to tempt you. Why? Because he wants to pull you off course. Do you see this progression? After a time of testing, there usually comes a massive temptation. Because Satan's thinking this. If I can't give you to give up, I'll try to get you to give in. Let me draw it out for you in a little chart. This is a pretty basic chart. You can draw it in about 30 seconds. But let me show you what it looks like. Let's take the shadowy figure as Joseph. He's looking forward to his life. God revealed, as Mike told us, some dreams. And God revealed his future to him. So he's not sure how this is going to unfold or what it means, but he knows in his heart, God has a plan for me. 
But along this upward way, shall we say, as God's trusting with a vision, a household, and a prison, we're going to see these different things. As God increases His trust in Joseph, you know what Satan is doing? Satan is along the way trying to drag Joseph down. And there are certain key encounters in every Christian's life. I think James lays them out for us, and I think Joseph pictures them. The first one is the matter of truth. Will we be men and women of integrity? When God reveals to us His calling upon us, and He says, this is what I want you to do, will we have the courage to do that? When God sees a heart of integrity, of authentic discipleship, I think God then says, great, I can trust you personally. Now, let's see if I can trust you with that for a long period of time when things aren't difficult. And life begins to test us, doesn't it? It throws curveballs at us and screwballs and fastballs that are chin high. And oftentimes we want to bail out of the box or charge the mound. I have found that if you will remain under, as uh, we're told in the New Testament during these tests, I have found, and James teaches us, that typically when Satan realizes, wow, they are just going to be faithful to God. They're not going to give up. They trust God so much. He will then try to seduce you. And I've known several godly men who, after enduring many tests, and I feel like just on the verge of what God could really do with them, were seduced, often by immorality, and proved, you know what, I probably can't be trusted after all. This is the pattern we're under. This is the pattern shown in Joseph's life. It's the pattern revealed in James. And so I want to encourage you today. When you face temptation tomorrow, it's not just a glib accident. It's not just a happenstance. Oh, look what popped up on the inbox. It's Satan trying to take you out. He sees you being faithful, child of God. He sees you enduring steadfastly. And he's thinking, if I can't get him to give up, if I can't give her to give up, maybe I'll get them to give in. And his demonic network, principalities and powers, you can read Ephesians about this, those things will all kick in and the target is on your back. You're in his crosshairs. And he wants to try to kill you and steal from you and destroy you. That's the enemy we're fighting. He's hung a lantern around some nag's neck. And they're trying to seduce you and entice you. It could be a woman. It could be money. It could be a relationship. It could be a man. It could be anything. But there's a false light. And if you look at that and say, Hey, there's somebody who found their way out from these tough times. And you go after it. Rocks are just ahead and you're going to crash. Brother and sister, I encourage you to learn from Joseph and to heed the warning of James. Do not even entertain sin for a moment. For when it bursts in our life, it ultimately leads to death. So say no to sin at the very beginning. Amen? In a spiritually perspective way, in a way of physically, just do whatever you have to do to say no to sin. Refuse it. March on in faithfulness to God. I show you this because I want you to realize this is happening to you. This is happening to you. I want to be very clear about this. I know almost every one of you. And I wish you could stay that way as our church grew because I love knowing you. But I know some guests here. I don't know you very well. But I can tell you, if you're like the church that we have here already, this is your life. And this week, every one of you will be tempted in some way to sin against 
God. Maybe as clear as I can with that. This week, every one of you will be tempted in some way to sin against your Heavenly Father. Let me give you some examples of what might happen to you this week. I'll show them behind me. Because it's just kind of what's going to happen in your life. You may be tempted to sin sexually. We're not exempt, people. In fact, I tend to think that growing churches that are committed to expositional preaching and magnifying the character of God, bringing glory to His name, churches of that nature probably have a little larger target. The demonic network that we're battling, the principalities and powers, the forces of evil, the wickedness in dark places, I don't think they're too worried about denominations or churches that only preach the gospel. They've already got them where they want them. Amen? But man, a fervent bunch of Christians who believe in the Lord and have faith that He can do and save anyone and just, just be aware, the target's large. And He's after you. I just heard this morning of a 32-year-old man in our state who was visiting a friend who had a 17-year-old daughter. And I don't know all the details, but he got a shower and the 17-year-old daughter approached the shower and wanted to get in with him. And in that moment, he said yes. Bad idea, wasn't it? He was tempted sexually. So don't say to yourself, well, that doesn't happen. You're crazy. Lust, adultery, pornography, morality. It is rampant in our culture. It is way too rampant in the church. This will happen. You will be tempted this week. You may be tempted emotionally with anger issues, jealousy, or greed. How many of you battle driving by different neighborhoods like, man, I'd like to have that home. Or I wish I could drive that car. I'm in the same boat with you. And if you let that settle in there, if you start thinking along those lines, greed will settle and you'll start making decisions and doing things that are totally contrary to what God's Word says. What are you worried about what they have or what they drive? God's going to take care of you. And after all, the Bible says to rejoice with those who rejoice. If God has blessed them, quit being immature and a baby and sulking about it. Be happy with them. Who cares if they got something you don't have? It doesn't matter. Obey the Bible. Rejoice with those who rejoice and just go on. Don't sin emotionally. Physically, some of you will be tempted to sin. Abusive situations or in violent arenas. I think there will be relational temptations this week. Probably the second one there of criticism is the one that most of us fight. It's so easy to make ourselves appear to be better by lowering someone else, isn't it? I mean, that's just a constant sin. And I think that one in the church is just extremely prevalent nationwide. I mean, I just pray daily that God will give First Family the kind of mature attitude that says, you know what? Criticism and comparison only leads downward. Let's, let's keep God as our focus. Here's a good rule of thumb for you. When you're at your dinner table, whether it's with your family or whether it's with your friends, don't talk about people. Our families discover that if you just talk about subjects and ideas, the criticism in your home will really just minimize. You'll be surprised. And you're also, if you find yourself talking about people, criticism is the only place to go. Most people have lacked the courage to consistently talk positively about people. They find some way to criticize and it starts going this way. So in our home, typically, we've dealt with all kinds of ways just to not talk about people. Like we have dinner trivia. And I listen every day for, for different tidbits and facts. You know why? Because when we sit down to eat, 
either Julia or Adam. I'm giving my secrets away to my kids that are here. But um, the first thing is, hey guys, how many people in the United States, or how many, what percentage of teams do this, or whose name? We have all kind of trivia. You know what? It gets our minds off of people. Well, that teacher said this to me today. Or so-and-so wrote this in the note. Or my coach, you know what? Things happen. And we can talk about them in the right kind of environment, but if they're all together, if criticism is the norm, man, you're going to have a really negative family life. And you know, whoever said it years ago was true. Small people talk about people. Large people talk about ideas. I'm not sure who said that, but I've heard it before. That's just a good way to really resist some of these relational sins. That will tempt you. It will happen. It will happen today. And then this last one, I think, will be tempted spiritually with idolatry. I think about this last one, unbelief. I mean, there could be people here right now this morning. You've been attending First Family or God has worked in your life and you know that Jesus Christ is the answer to your sin problem. You know that only His death and burial and resurrection, only the Gospel saves... And yet you've sat there in your seat week after week. And I've invited you to pray with me to receive Christ. Or you've maybe come in contact with me on another level. Or one of our elders. Or our church in a small group. Or maybe one of our members in some way. And you've been exhorted to just believe in Jesus Christ. His grace is sufficient to save you. And yet you keep saying, but, but, but what if? I had someone ask me this week. Todd, uh, they're a new believer. And they said, Todd, I'm really struggling with some old habits. And I said, you know, we'll walk with you through that. God is going to change you and we'll help you. And she goes, yeah, but, but what if I do them again? Will I be unsaved? And I say, listen, um, did you get saved by quitting them? She said, no, I, I believed in the gospel and took my stand that He was the only way. I said, then you probably won't get unsaved by starting them. She said, oh, I get it. I said, don't get me wrong. God is going to sanctify you. He wants to move you toward holiness. But your salvation is not dependent on how you do, good or bad. It's all upon the grace of God revealed in Christ on the cross. Amen? And as I sit here and look at some of you guys, I just want you to know, now's the time to resist sin, even the sin of unbelief, and say, Lord, though my flesh wants to lean on what I've done, though my human body says that this is too simple and too good to be true, Lord, I believe this morning that You are the only way. Resist the sin of unbelief and pursue God. He is the way out of your sin. Whether it's unbelief, idolatry. In fact, did you know that First John says this? And I'll close with this verse. First John says this. Jesus Christ, I think it's in chapter 2, came to destroy the works of the devil. So in this list of sins you just saw a minute ago, guess what? Jesus Christ can destroy them. Hallelujah, church. Amen? You do not have to give in to internet pornography. You don't have to give in to feeling good by spending. You don't have to give in to verbal words that make yourself feel better about yourself or control. None of that has to happen. Jesus Christ came to destroy sin. And He can destroy it in your life. Initially, through belief, He can release you from the damning power of sin, which is what sends folks to hell. But He can also release you from that, from that damning presence of sin where, where, where you feel like, I have to give, I have to give. No, you don't. Romans 6 says you can walk in victory because of Jesus Christ and His grace. It's always amazing to watch church members when I say, you don't have to sin. They're like, well, yeah, I do. I'm human. Well, who lives in you? 
the Spirit of Almighty God and He has given you the power and the capacity because of the resurrection to say no to sin. So you don't have to sin. May we live like Joseph and flee. See it from God's perspective. And then as we remain under and endure tests and resist temptation, may God find us faithful and trust us with greater opportunities to bring glory to His name. Amen? I pray this week, you, that's right, you right here at First Family Church, from this row to that corner to that corner down here, I pray you will resist sin. May God find you faithful. May He find you trustworthy. Pray with me, please.